0: Not so much the St. Peter standing at the pearly gates kinds of jokes, more, a little more sick, twisted religious humor, kind of the punchy one-liners, the stuff that keeps me honest and humble. And my husband sometimes participates in this sick sense. He buys me these little badges once in a while, these little buttons. Last week when we were talking about why it's important for Christians to have their Bibles open, to study together, to think together, I intended to bring and wear my pin. I think, therefore I'm dangerous. Right? This one stays in my car with me right above the visor. When I look up, I am reminded that, uh, that I choose to be a thinking person in my world. And we could think the freeways are dangerous in California, but actually thinking people could be dangerous for us. I think, therefore I'm dangerous. Now, I intended this morning to put a second button on, left it at home, and I'm so sorry. Second button I would have worn today said, says, you may be read, Lord, dear Lord, please protect me from your followers, which is kind of an interesting one for a pastor to wear. It is less about you more about me. Lord, please protect me from your followers. I want to remember when I open the word like this morning, Luke chapter 15, what kind of a follower am I? How am I portraying God in the world? Luke chapter 15, thank you to the Matsudas for reading for us this this morning. There are a group of people gathered around Jesus in Luke chapter 15 As it begins in verse 1, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable This man welcomes sinners, which is to imply the muttering ones are implying not right. Jesus welcoming the outsiders, Jesus welcoming the ones who don't belong, not right, they're complaining to each other, sinners, tax collectors, muttering believers. I don't think that's insignificant, then Jesus tells this story about lost things. It's interesting in, in Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter fifteen here, there are a collection of lost things stories, three of them, a trio, a lost coin, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son, all put together. Some people say because three are here together in one, that must mean something. There must be some pr- more profound meaning, because they're collected like this. And and some people say, no, actually there are three different stories with three different meanings, you have to read them all separately. And some say, well, actually, one and two go together. The coin and the sheep and the coin, they're very much alike. And you'll read for yourself and see what you think as you study these parables. I would offer this morning that indeed Luke is doing something when he chooses to collect all three and write them together. Matthew does it differently. Luke writes to this context, to this group of people, grumbling believers. And tells a story of three lost things. Matthew does it completely differently. It is a good example of what we were discussing last Sabbath. Why we should think when we have our Bibles open. Why we ought to continue studying together. I suggest Luke is up to something when he puts all three lost things together. I also want to remember that sometimes in religious experience, we forget of the simple story-like nature of our faith. Sometimes, and I am guilty of this as much as any because I love learning and digging and studying myself, sometimes we make things more complicated and complex. We come up with more words and larger words and more syllables and constructs we place together and then we congratulate ourselves when we have this understanding and we forget sometimes that when Jesus taught truths, it sounded like There was a man out planting in a field. There was a woman with a a ball of dough she was kneading. Or there was a shepherd out in the field with his sheep. Suppose one of you, verse 4 says, suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and you'll lose one of them does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he carries it home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you. That in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not repent. Two groups of people listening to the teaching of Jesus those on the outside that the insiders have grumbled about, those on the outside who know they belong on the outside, the sinners, those on the inside who have an idea about where they belong. Now, if you're an outsider listening to the story, you can hardly miss, especially when three lost things are talked about at the same time, you could hardly miss on the outside the idea that the sheep keeper, the master, is putting everything down, leaving the fold, coming out after you. You could hardly miss that you, the lost person, the sinner, the one on the outside, are precisely the one being chased This would be startling good news, as all the religious elite are circled in, pressed in together, staying safe. What amazing good news, the shepherds coming after me. Just one, anyone, everyone, worth the risk, worth going for, if you were the outsider, would be startling good news. If you are the insider, it might also be startling in a different way. Startling because you are on the inside. Startling because you are the one pressing in. Startling because you're not sure you understand why the shepherd goes after that one sinner on the outside. Startling. Do you identify with a person who says it's really not so bad? One out of 99, someone shared in board meeting this week when we studied the passage, one out of 100, I'm sorry, one out of 100, that's not about 1% loss. If you were running a business, you'd be grateful in a bad year for 1% loss. Do you identify a little bit? We can't keep them all. You know, not everybody is savable. Not everybody will stay. We can only do what we can do. The odds aren't so bad there. The back door exists, we all know, and the metaphors just continue to expand for the back door. Exit stage left. I read an article last week from the sanctuary. Exit stage left. Or I remember my grandparents' generation would sing that song, there's a hole in my bucket, dear Liza, dear Liza. Someone fix the hole. There's a back door. There's a hole in the bucket. There's an exit. Everyone free to come and go. And that is, by the way, where our family metaphor breaks down just a little bit in the church experience because we are not connected by blood the same way family members are. We have more choice about coming and going and we exercise it. Do you identify with people who say, well, there's a hole in the bucket and it'll be that way? Just two months ago, our world church headquarter office released a statement, they've, they've, a statement that they voted. If you visit the General Conference website, you could read for yourself the details. Interesting to me that this statement is a voted appeal to churches and to church members. Here's what they're saying. The title of the statement, conserving membership gains and appeal. The worldwide church membership numbers are not showing a 1% loss, but an almost 30% loss. That's the worldwide church. It's about 28%, a little plus. So from the years 2000 to 2005 where we baptized about 5 million people or we brought into the church about 5 million people, we lost 28% of those people through the hole in the bucket. So the General Conference has voted this appeal to begin understanding about these people who go missing here in our own corner of the world, in Southeastern California Conference and in our Pacific Union, we're talking about California, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Hawaii, numbers are even a little dif- more different. About seven of us go missing every day in our territory. It's almost a two-for-one statistic here, though. Instead of 30%, we baptize two, we lose about one. Right here. Now, we don't have a Cala Mesa church statistic. We don't know, but we're, most of us mirror fairly closely the, the larger statistics we're reading. There's a hole in the bucket. Some of those who leave are college students who move around to other congregations, and we just never quite catch up with them. We don't know where they go. And they, sometimes they tell us, but a lot of times they don't. It's one example. People who move, and they just never join a church where they move to. Or they never bother to to write and say, you know, I'm going somewhere else now. We just lose them. Apostasies, they're called. Missing members. Two for one where we live here in California. Why do these leave? I think the correct answer is we really don't know. But the General Conference is suggesting, and you can read for yourself, they believe that of the 30% who leave... 30% of those who leave now, now we're inside the the small number, 30% of those who leave, they believe they leave because they don't feel they belong. They don't feel that they are engaged and connected to their congregation. They leave because they don't feel a nurturing environment. 30% of people leave, according to the General Conference, because of that. And so they are suggesting that there are three things that factor into whether a person will stay or leave once we bring them into our fellowship here. One is, can they articulate their beliefs? Do they know what the Bible teaches? Do they know what we teach? That's important if people are going to stay and be connected. Another is, do they have friends can they look to the left, look to the right, and say, I have friends in this place, people who know my name, people I eat with, people I socialize with, people I can wrestle in conversation with, people I call my friends. And, and by the way, the, the interesting research among the youth continues to confirm that unless youth in our church have people who know their names and call them friends and have several adults like that, the youth leave even quicker. So, can people articulate what they believe? Do they have friends? Second factor. Third factor, the general conference tells us is important, is are people engaged in a ministry of their own? Do they have something to do at the church? Are those things in place? And they say to us, these leaders, if one of the two is missing, it's likely the person will stay in community. But if more than one of those is missing, it's likely they'll leave that they'll become one of the statistics. So they encourage us, when we bring people into the church, make sure we keep studying together, which is why we have our emphasis now on these small study groups. They encourage us to help people find out what their gifts are and be involved in church. They encourage us to create an environment that is more than a program, an environment of a loving atmosphere, taking personal interest in each other. One third of people who leave leave because they don't find a loving atmosphere is really the bottom line of their study. Now we have something we can talk about. Because who is responsible for our atmosphere here? It isn't anyone on the East Coast. It's me. It's it's you. Why do people leave us, do you think? You can read all sorts of research and information on this topic. And we're told, for every person who leaves, there's another reason why they've left. There are that many reasons. But there are a lot of people who leave group around a few ideas here. One is, in America in particular, this consumer-driven mentality, that we shop for what we want. That if we don't find it here, we can go to the next church, and it works very nicely where you and I live, right? And you can go and see who's speaking wherever you want to go, and you can go see the, the biggest group in town, and you, we can shop for whatever we want. It's a consumer-driven mentality that's a little different here than where I was in May. I went to a church called the Boonville Seventh-day Adventist Church. It, it was in the Boons. Do, have you been there? Boonville, no, Boonville, Missouri far away from here where there were 30 people in church on sabbath morning which is the more typical adventist experience on a sabbath not what we experience but what boonville experiences boonville and we were five percent of their attendance that day because we brought the whole family 30 people there it's one of those kinds of churches where they uh, they heard i could play the piano and they asked if i would accompany the last song because the pianist could only do it with one hand and and that's the way you do things in Boonville, right? Who, who leaves because the pianist can only do it with one hand? Where are you going to go? You're in Boonville. I rather think it's a great idea. We should all be stuck in places like that. But that's a whole other Sermon. It's a consumer-driven mentality. We have choices, and we go and we exercise them. I listened with great interest to these co- collegiates at a table at the IHOP a couple weeks ago. I tell you that I eavesdrop on conversations in the restaurant. Never sit beside me. I love to hear these stories. So here they are, two young college students, and they are complaining. They are irate. They have been robbed by the college system. They, they cannot understand why the college can charge them for classes that they flunked. It is wrong. How could a college do that? Well, we're just not going to go there next year. Solution. I hope they find a college who won't charge, by the way, for those units. So, a consumer-driven mentality, we have choices and options and we exercise them and sometimes we leave. Sometimes message sent, message received among church members and church leaders, something happens there and we we are hurt not always intentionally, sometimes unknowingly. If you've been watching this story from Illinois this week, it seems that there's a family with a baby monitor that's been picking up the live video feed from Atlantis Space Shuttle. Have you heard this? Here's the baby monitor sitting in the room, and there's the black and white live video feed from the Atlantis (laughs) since Sunday morning. My guess is now that the computers are straightened out, maybe the feed is also gone. But all week, they were glued to their screen because they could watch what was happening in space. Something lost in transmission, message sent, message received, something mixed up, crossed, and that happens to you and I in church experience. In families, certainly, we know that in our own homes. Sometimes we hurt each other, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, and we just never go back and fix it and people leave. Sometimes people leave because they feel unaccepted and We have sent a message to them that they'll just really never measure up to our level. In fact, I've been told that about my very own church here at Cala Well, I just don't fit in with you people out there. Message sent. Some people leave because they never feel they'll meet our standards. And I hope you'll come back next week when Art Earl and Bill Hooker lead us through a conversation on addictions and why people choose to medicate and what we can do to be helpful. I was never more clear about this, uh, people not feeling like they measure up, never more clear than this visual we got in Sydney last year, year before. We are touring this gorgeous cathedral, downtown Sydney, one of two very large cathedrals. This one is built in the 19th century, St. Mary's Cathedral, first destroyed by fire, and they rebuilt it, and it's absolutely startling it's beautiful. There was a service going on inside. We weren't able to go in. Celebration of a saint, a festival happening. So we were walking around the outside of the facade there. Kirby loves to uh, look at the gargoyles and take pictures of those gargoyles on the exterior. We were looking at all of this. We turn a corner around the front there and we run into this little woman, everything you can imagine in an Eastern European face and weathered skin, all hunched over with a big jacket and a big wool cap. And she's all hunched around the corner smoking on her little cigarette, just taking her little puffs. She must be 75 or 80. We come around the corner, and she says to us, oh, 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 hello, hello, and moves her cigarette down behind her coat. How are you? Where are you folks from? We have a conversation. What's going on inside? Oh, it's a special Eastern ceremony. Oh, lovely. Most of them don't speak English inside, and we learned a lot about her, and And then she had the courage to pull her little cigarette out, and she said to our girls, Don't mind me, honey. Those saints, they just don't understand. Takes a little puff on her cigarette. Those saints just don't understand. Some people leave because they don't think they'll ever really measure up to the expectations we've created. Some people leave, actually, when the dynamics in their home change. Divorce is at the top of the list. Some people leave because in the experience of divorce, it becomes immediately uncomfortable because of internal messages, because of messages you and I send, because of even do-gooding. We think we're helping and we're not. Some people, that is a time in life, an experience in life, when most Christians slide away from their church across denominational lines because it is so uncomfortable to be present, and, and we oftentimes contribute to that. Some people leave for these reasons. People leave for other reasons, too. I hope you paid careful attention to the general conference data when they said 30% of us leave because we don't feel at home, we don't feel like we belong, we don't find a loving atmosphere. What about the rest? So much research has been done. Let me summarize some myths that Alan jamenson gives from New Zealand. His book is called The Churchless Faith. The churchless faith, he says, we are post-congregational Christians now, right? He says, here are some myths that you and I have about Christians who leave the church. We think people who leave are young. That's a myth, he said, we need to bust, disregard. We think people who leave have inadequate faith. People who leave are only in the mainline denominations. People who leave will come back again one day. People who leave are backsliding in their faith. People who leave are just busy in the world right now. They'll come back when life settles down for them. People who leave have personal disagreements with church leadership. People who leave, he says, have one of these conditions, and he's there to tell us no. No. Most people who leave don't fit into that category. In fact, they're finding since the turn of the century, now in the 21st century, more people who leave church are leaving out of carefully thought-filled decisions. That's why he calls it the churchless faith. Choosing not to leave God, choosing to leave us. So I wear my pin. Lord, protect me from your follower. Me. People choosing to be absent from us. A post-congregational world. Becoming lever-sensitive is something every congregation can do, and it is... Also startling, this sociologist tells us what most leavers now, I'll use that word, leavers, those who go, what most of them have in common is that none of us come and ask why. That most, it is the typical experience of someone who's left church that no one has come after them. No one has bothered to have a conversation with them. So towards becoming leaver sensitive here at Cala I wonder, along with what the general conference has reminded us of, would it be wise for us to covenant? When people leave, we, we would take the time to ask. When people leave, that we will listen. When people leave, we will find it in ourselves to be the healing balm that they need. When people leave, we would offer an apology, maybe for something we wouldn't do, didn't do. When people leave, we would offer acceptance, 1 Peter 4, verse 8, written to the church in the later times, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various form. If anyone speaks, he should speak as doing so with the very words of God. When I speak, my words will be perceived as the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Christ Jesus." To him be the glory and power forever and ever. In a statement they voted last month at the general conference, they also concluded, What the church needs most is love. What the church needs most is not superficial love, but serious, difficult acceptance of one another. And our general conference president concluded with the sentence, it is the most powerful experience for anyone to know they are deeply loved. What would bring a lever back? To know they are loved. First Peter 4 calls us to that action. Now, ultimately, I have decided as I study Luke 15, ultimately... It depends upon how I value things, and I go back to the text and I look again, because now I'm watching not as the outsider or the insider, but I'm watching with the eyes of God, and look again at the story quickly. God, who is always for the particular in the story, no matter where they've gone, a God who never stops, God who is so passionate that the 99 are left, and that has very interesting ramifications for you and I on the inside, that That the leader would leave us here. That somehow we ought to be able to take care of things. What does that mean? That the leader would leave the 99. I watch that action of God. That 99 are left because of one. That here is God identifiably happy and joyful when the one is found. If you've thought of your God as sort of monotone and straight-faced and neutral, the text tells us clearly God had a party. There was so much joy in heaven over just one. God laughing and smiling and, and carry on. And it comes clearer to me the more I read from the perspective of God in the story. There is a difference between being the one who, who is pierced by the amazing love of Jesus and understanding that, that Jesus died just for me. There's, that's one reality in itself, being pierced by that. And another reality is accepting that, allowing God to redeem me. And another reality is being ready to tell the world that's the kind of God we have, the God who pursues just even and only the one, that God is after you. That's another reality. But but an even further reality is being so moved by what this God does that I can't help but join the initiative. Something happens inside you and I when we jump into God's initiative. When we value what God values, as Betty prayed, Lord, make it matter to us. And that is, to me, the key of the parable. When I value what God values, I won't be able to help but jump in and join the initiative. What's it look like? I gave Trevin Schmunk a call earlier in the week. Trevin had his picture up here on the screen earlier with his son. He's a 20-something parent in our congregation. He sits in the back here, and he told me I could speak about him. I had an instinct, and I called Trevin and said, I know just a little bit about your story, and I know you haven't always been in the church, but let me just ask you one question. How significant is your attendance in this community? How significant are John and Georgie Barrett in the fact that you are present among us? And Trevin said, oh, they're everything. I'm here because of John and Georgie. And he went on to describe what it is to be raised as an Adventist Christian and, friends, partially raised by us in this church at Cala and to be taught in our schools and to go off to college. And he he described what happened to him when he turned his back on church when he decided to be a leaver because he saw a picture of a god That was so alarming. He left. And then there come John and Georgie Barrett. He says, in Georgie, I have this constant, continual, unconditional love. Never goes away. And in John, I have a person who is able to explain to me in the simplest form what the gospel is about. And he's able to tell me in, in more tough terms where I don't measure up, and that's worked for me, and I wouldn't be here if it weren't for John and Georgie Barrett. So thank you for giving us an example, Barretts, and Trevin for letting me tell your story. Trevin now wrestles with the character of God questions in the church and the great controversy and, and wondering about ideas of the atonement and, and evil in the world, and he's thoughtful engaged young man, present because somebody went after him. When I care about what God cares about, something will change in my life. Maybe this has happened to you in your moves. We, we've moved several times and we tend to lose things when we move. Has that happened to you? Sometimes we lose things that are quite precious, like in one move, the Nortaki stemware, the crystal we were given at our wedding. It is gone. You know, the good stuff, the expensive stuff you would never buy for yourself, but what people give you. Hope this doesn't happen to you, Isaac and Grace, as you marry tomorrow and all the beautiful gifts that you'll be given. Somewhere our our crystal is gone. Pictures, we've lost some pictures, some precious things. Sometimes we've lost things that didn't really matter. Box 36 and 37 from the Nashville move. I'll never forget because they're on the packing slip. They were never found. Don't know what was inside. I haven't missed them in all these years. Whatever. Sometimes we lose things. that just really don't matter. The most precious loss to me happened with just a two-mile move about three or four years ago. I didn't know it was lost until I stood in the garage on a stepladder and pulled on a dusty tarp and down into my hands fell... A, a dirty, dusty box, and I had no idea of, of these lost things. Out into my lap fell my very first um, doll. And you can see the love and attention she was given. <laughs> she has no hair and no clothes. My doll was in the box. And I kept digging as things fell out in my lap. My very first piano, without its legs, it's, this is it. The one like on the Peanuts cartoon strip, you know? My piano in the box. Also in the box, my very first zither. I don't know what age I was, but mom tells me I just I played for 6 months solid when they gave this to me at Christmas time, my zither in the box. I had no idea it was lost. In the box is my letterman jacket from academy and now I'm kind of irritated cuz it's so cheap looking. I see what the kids get today. This is plastic, you know? This is like low-budget stuff, but it's mine. It was from my academy senior year. My, my letterman jacket's in, in the box. Also in the box, the Bible from when I was baptized, where I inscribed inside, I am 10.5 years old today. My Bible from my baptism in the box. And my first and only mitt. Sixth grade, fits like a glove, because It is. Used it all the way through high school, through academy, never needed another one. Beautiful mitt. Said my first bad word with this mitt on my hand. My mitt in the box. Did you hear the pronoun? They matter because they're mine probably doesn't matter so much to you, but they're mine. These are my things. These matter all the world to me because I grew up with these things. When I catch that what belongs to God is actually his, it's mine, he's saying, I'm going after it because it belongs to me, my son, my daughter, my teenager, my young adult, my disillusioned generation. When I catch that they belong to God, that they're his, then they matter to me. Oh, that we be that kind of church. So let me ask again. Which one among you, if you lost just one, wouldn't stop everything and go after? Let's pray. For this amazing example you set for us, God, we say thank you. For the reality that you pursue us and you've chosen us and you take us with you, thank you. Now, would you make us that church that drops what we're doing and follows your lead and goes after even and only just one. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.